Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Quorum Podcast. This is where academic medicine meets remote, austere, and resource-limited areas. Welcome back to the Quorum Podcast. Today, Dr. Winston DeMello will be discussing the first responders' management of severe burns. Dr. DeMello is one of the founders of the college. He's a burn consultant, pain consultant. Uh, He sits on the British Burns Association as chairman, I believe. Is that right, Winston? Yes, it is. And you have extensive experience with burns in the operational setting as well as in the civilian setting. So, Winston, how did you get your interest in burns? It it just coincided with the Falklands War, as uh, many people will realize, it's 40 years ago. I was just a, a very junior hospital doctor in the military hospital in Aldershot. And uh, since 1982, there were uh, several occasions when myself and other uh, doctors like uh, Phil Ward, that you, who you know, um, were anesthetizing these burn victims several months, years after uh, their original uh, burn injury in the Falklands. So that's how it all started. And then just fortuitously... When I left the military, I, I managed to get into Manchester and work on the Burns Centre at Widdenshaw Hospital, both as a consultant anaesthetist on a Monday uh, afternoon list and for a, a multidisciplinary team meeting uh, every Wednesday morning um, as the pain consultant. So I've had a, quite an extensive experience in uh, major burns. And you've presented quite a bit on burns. You've presented in seminars and in uh, conferences with the Special Operations Medical Association. Just recently, you, you presented at the Combat Medical Conference in Paris. So you, you've done a lot of presentations on burns and pain as well. It's just a, a part of, uh, you know, the development that we've had at Quorum. You know, if it wasn't for Quorum, these opportunities wouldn't have arisen. Um, so I think it's a symbiosis of my involvement with Quorum and passing on the baton to the next generation of uh, of specialists or, or first responders who, who will be facing a patient with a major burn. But so major burns cause so much stress for first responders, for healthcare providers. What is the etiology of the stress? Why is burn such a big topic? Well, as you know, burns and, and uh, severe head injuries are what we call distracting injuries. Uh, first of all, a major burn is rare. There are about 13,000 cases of burns in England and Wales annually. But the median size of the burn is just 1% to 2%. So the chances of you dealing with a major burn on a regular basis is fortunately rare. And what makes it even more difficult is that of all the major burns, just 5 to 7% will have other injuries. So this we will discuss uh, later. And of all trauma, just uh, 1% is by major burns. So even in in the trauma world, it's um, very rare. Therefore, I think when you're uh, confronting a major burn, especially if if they're still alive, the pain, the smell of burnt flesh, you know, is is quite overpowering. And until, you you know, you engage your CABC, you'll make a mistake. And uh, I, I guess... That's the reason why when we teach in quorum uh, things about uh, burns, we make sure that they understand that they have to have 
scene safety, and then go through the logical CABC process. You never forget the smell of burns or the burn casualty. My my first burns experience was 1993 with the green ramp accident at Fort Bragg where two airplanes crashed and one of them was full of, of 160 paratroopers. And so by the time they were coming into the Fort Bragg hospital there, there were profound amount of major, major burns. And, and as you walk along the corridor, you, you could just smell the, the burns. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's it's a very difficult thing to address because you're the, the pain that the screaming, the vast damage that the, the burns have, it was traumatic for me. So as, as a paramedic, we come across the, the burn casualties very often after the fact, and it's the first responders' actions that are so important. Why, why is that? As you know, during our courses in Quorum, when we teach paramedics, especially when they're working in, in an isolated environment, good management of a major burn in the pre-hospital environment um, reduces the total body surface area burnt, and also reduces the uh, the depth of the burn. So in, in just doing uh, basic interventions, but doing it well, you will reduce the morbidity and of obviously uh, mortality. The second is that it will reduce health costs because if your burn is smaller, your depth of burn is less, then it's going to be less expensive during their stay uh, through the journey from intensive care uh, right through to rehabilitation. And probably something that uh, is not picked up, uh, but certainly uh, uh, my experience in dealing with pain in burn patients, a good analgesia given early on uh, and as soon as possible, but still following the CABC means that the outcome for the patient is going to be better than if uh, the basics weren't done well. Mm. And heat is an obvious cause. Uh, there's quite a few different etiologies. What else besides heat? would cause these burns? Uh, heat is the one that, that we traditionally sort of can, can understand. But but you know my feelings about uh, ice packs. You know, I, I worry about, for example, uh, causing injury by ice packs. So cold is another one. Uh, friction, um, friction burns, uh, like if somebody's dragged across the street or whatever, uh, that, that can be, uh, it's almost like a degloving injury. Uh, can acid alkali of which cement is uh, is a common work and industry uh, issue and uh, sadly due to the uh, uh, current military situation in eastern europe uh, the use of phosphorus in missiles and then there is the electrical ones uh, which are usually industry uh, and also the high voltage which can be devastating injuries because that can result in in a whole lot of tissue loss right uh, to the bone uh, and obviously electrical storms. And finally, uh, the most common one is uh, radiation. You know, we, well, some of us like to have a, a nice tan skin, so sun exposure, but it can be nasty. Uh, and also radiation from industry and from uh, military sources. So there's a wide spectrum of uh, sources of burns. And I think it's important that uh, as a pre-hospital responder, the first responder, is to try and work out the etiology of, of the burn, as sometimes it may not be uh, so obvious. And the second thing is, if you are forensic about your history taking, uh, you will cut the need for the hospital then to uh, go back to the scene where it may not be possible to do so and try and get information uh, of what the chemical was or what, what the source of radiation was or what the mechanism of injury was. So I think uh, in terms of... Um, of etiology, 
keep an open mind, try and get as much information if they are bystanders or if it's an industrial site of uh, a burn, then get the necessary details from the uh, foreman um, and give as much information to the receiving hospital. Your point on history taking is is often looked over. Like Oliver Wendell Holmes said, what, 95% of diagnosis comes from history. And that works in trauma as well, doesn't it? For, for burns, we need to know precisely what happened. Yes, you're right. And uh, I think, um, you know, I always say to people, history should give you a, f- a framework, in the case of burns, the etiology. And once you know the etiology, you can then uh, individualize your treatment. For example, if it's a chemical and it can be washed off, then then you go ahead and do it because as soon as you decontaminate uh, the wound, the better. Secondly, if if you know that it's a powder and and the powder is uh, caustic, say when it uh, gets in contact with water, then you could uh, brush it off carefully uh, whilst making sure that you've got full PPE on. Yeah, speaking of that approach, so. How do you as clinically manage this? So you, you have someone with a burn. How, how do you approach this and how, how do you assess this and how do you manage this? Well, uh, like I said, burn is a distracting injury and, um, and occasionally, rarely, uh, a trauma and burn may coexist. I think it's important to, to try uh, and get the history and the mechanism of injury. We talked about scene safety. And then I, I like the safe approach, which we uh, used in the battles course in the military, where S uh, is for shout for help, A, assess the scene, F, free from danger, and then evaluate in uh, either CABC or March, depending whether you're in the UK or in the United States. The most important thing is to stop the burning process, cool the burn wound, but not the patient. Three, cover the burn and four, elevate if possible. And if the patient has a head and neck burn, sit them up if, uh, unless there is a contraindication because it is going to reduce the chances of having to intubate these patients. So intubation is, is definitely the, the last-ditch effort for your airway ladder. Why are inhalation burns so dangerous for the airway? Inhalational burns are dangerous because if the thermal energy that's been transferred uh, from the source of uh, burn uh, will overwhelm the cooling processes of your nose and upper airway, then it will destroy uh, and inflame the mucosa. So you're going to get swelling. And when you get swelling, you will eventually develop stridor. So that that's one issue. The second issue, which is probably more sinister, is that if it's a burn in a confined room, the chances of carboxyhemoglobin or cyanhemoglobin, any one of the dishemoglobins, uh, becomes a, a problem, and you, the patient will die from systemic toxicity if you're not careful. Furthermore, when you inhale uh, micro sizes of uh, soot, uh, this causes a chemical reaction within the lower airway. And then leads on to the eventual uh, acute lung injury uh, and ARDS. So that is why inhalational burns have a particularly uh, bad impact on on survival, uh, because if you have an inhalational burn, it adds 17 points to the advanced bow score, which predicts mortality. So yes, uh, inhalational burns, anything within a confined space must be taken very seriously. The good news is that the airway 
swelling and the edema of the tracheal mucosa doesn't occur instantly. So setting them up in a head-up position is important. Getting them to cough is important. Um, and as you remember, uh, the uh, Bali bombings, when the Australian team led by uh, uh, Professor Wood, uh, she sat all the patients who could do, sat them up, and uh, that reduced the number of uh, surgical airways or intubations that needed to be done. So that's a very simple thing to do. And if you think about it, if you've got an inhalational burn, you're going to have a chest problem because you'll be coughing. And it's better uh, coughing when you're sat up rather than lying on your back. Indeed. And everyone loves talking about surgical airways when it comes to burns, Winston. What would your indication of using a front of neck access airway? Two things. Uh, the, the first is you've got to make a judgment as to whether there is imminent danger of uh, complete upper way obstruction. So that's the first. The second is where are you going to? In other words, how far are you away from a local uh, district general hospital or a big uh, teaching hospital or even a burn centre? So that will dictate whether it's a scoop and run or stay and play. And uh, front of neck access is probably an easier thing for the uh, paramedic to do than intubation uh, using RSI because... As you know, in battles about uh, 15 years ago, we changed the ladder from RSI to surgical airway access front of neck, as you mentioned. And that's because it is easier a task to do uh, than um, trying to maintain uh, the practical skills of intubating somebody on a regular basis. So that, that that's my view. If you're going to transfer the patient and the transfer is going to be difficult, uh, then you might have to think of a prophylactic surgical airway. Certainly in, in austere environments and, and resource-limited environments, the intubation is just not an option. We, we don't have that much RSI drugs to keep people sedated. So the, the FONA is going to be a better option. Yeah, definitely. All right. So airway, we've talked about that. Winston, let's talk about respiration. What do we need to worry about with burns? There are two things. One, one is the uh, importance of, of chest physiotherapy. Do you remember when you talk about inhalational burns, there's always the chance that, uh, that there'll be uh, inhaled particles uh, that will start a pneumonitis process within the lungs. So that's the first. The second is uh, not, not immediately, but four or five di- days down the line, uh, if there is a front of chest or a circumferential chest burn, the respiratory excursion uh, that is required for uh, ventilating may be embarrassed. So it's actually like the patient being put into a tight body armor or tight bodice, and they're not going to be able to ventilate properly. So an escarotomy, which is a way of relieving it, is critical. And uh, this is also a, a process uh, that can cause quite severe blood loss and is very painful. So you need good procedural sedation for it to be uh, done appropriately because you need to cut the eschar, which is the burnt wound, uh, but you also need to to extend the incisions into normal surrounding tissue. And and as you know, the surrounding tissue is very uh, hyperalgesic, so it can be very painful. And that is one of the reasons why uh, my choice for, for analgesia for procedural sedation in burns is ketamine, because burn 
is not just a nociceptive process, it's also a neuropathic pain process. And ketamine is the only uh, routine clinical drug that we have that works both for nociceptive and neuropathic pain. So that, those are the, the main aspects of worry in respiration, making sure you've got good chest physiotherapy and to making sure that there is no embarrassment to ventilation. So, Winston, you mentioned pneumonitis. How would you treat that in an austere environment? Very difficult. Um, you might have to start uh, using nebulizers. One of the uh, things that we do in intensive care is to, to bronchoscope somebody and literally try and, and remove as much as, uh, of the debris that, uh, that you can see. Uh, we tend to alkalize the, uh, the bronchus uh, to try and neutralize the pH. But I guess in, in an austere environment, just to ne- nebulize some saline and ca- encouraging coughing and percussion of the chest is probably all you can do. It can be very effective, especially if they started off as an ASA1 status. That is a good overview of the respiration. So let's talk about circulation, Winston. What do we need to think about with burns during circulation? Probably the most important thing is making sure that the, the patient has a, a radial pulse. And I always say to people, check both radial pulses, left and right, just get in the habit of doing it on both sides. Because if you lose a radial pulse on one limb, then that might might suggest that there is another reason why, like a, a loss of va- uh, vascular supply to the, li- uh, to the upper limb. The big take-home message is that a patient is unlikely to become hypotensive uh, within the first 6 to 12 hours after a burn. So if somebody's hypotensive, i.e. not got a radial pulse, there must be another uh, source of uh, blood loss. And as we used to say, blood on the floor and four more, chest, abdomen, pelvis, and long bones. And with the uh, um, availability of ultrasound, you can uh, exclude most of these possibilities very quickly and, and not be anxious about uh, a, a, a theoretical problem. You can actually exclude it by good ultrasound scanning. So in, in circulation, we've been, we've been taught the various rehydration formulas. Uh, which one is your favorite? Um, for pre-hospital care, I don't have a favorite because, as you know, uh, the various formula, Parkland, Brooks, the consensus formula is, is quite a, a wide range, two to four mils per kilogram per percentage burnt in the first 24 hours. In an osteo environment, you, A, you may not have these fluids. So I, I, I think if a patient's able to drink, I think one should allow it, A, for access of uh, to fluids, but B, it's also very kind. But you've got to be careful with the patient with the upper burn airway because they may cough and splutter and change a, uh, a bad situation into a worse one and uh, have upper way obstruction. But generally speaking, uh, as you know, most people find it very difficult doing the calculations on, on burn fluid formula. Uh, and we have a further added problem that we don't have much fluids in osteo environments. So the one that we published was basically a very simple mantra, small man, small burn, small bag, big man, big burn, big bag. So it's either put a 500 mil Hartmann's or a liter of Hartmann's over one hour and that is your fluid balance. It's a way of avoiding overloading the patient with with fluid, in which case it will have problems on the uh, alveolar capillary interface and lead to a longer time in the intensive care on the ventilator or be under 
fluid resuscitating, in which case you have an acute kidney injury and then you have the dialysis. So I, I think you've got to be pragmatic. I would just go for uh, 500 or a, a litre per hour until you get into an area where the resources are better and then you can do a back calculation of the fluids required or you can use urine output as your indicator. What urine output are you looking for in a burns casualty? The tradition uh, says 0.5 mils per kilogram per hour. I think uh, one is probably the safer uh, safer one to go for. And if you've got hemochromogens, that is, in other words, the suspicion of uh, rhabdomyoglobinuria, uh, then you require at least two liters, two mils per kilogram per hour. So one mil per kilogram per hour would be my, my cutoff point. You mentioned... Uh ultrasound earlier, how valuable would the IVC measurement be with hydration status in a burns casualty? Oh, uh, tremendous. I mean, it just gives you um, a completely novel way of being suspicious as to what is going on. No, I I think IVC measurements in these cases, especially if it's done serially uh, by the same operator in in osteoconditions, that will be the case. Um, yeah, g- g- gives you a sense of security if you can confirm it. Uh, no, I, I fully agree that uh, ultrasound in in the osteo environment can take away a lot of the uh, the anxiety about the diagnostic and the trend analysis that goes on in these uh, complex patients. What are the obvious causes of oliguria despite the adequate fluid resource? Well, there is something called the secondary abdominal compartment syndrome. Um, I think most of our listeners will be familiar with the compartment uh, syndrome involving the upper limb or the lower limb, uh, either from crush or from electrical injury or accidental IV uh, uh, tissuing. The similar thing can happen if the patient has got a major burn across the anterior abdominal wall, uh, the eschar that forms uh, prevents the excursion of the abdominal wall uh, during respiration. And therefore, the pressure within the abdominal cavity in, increases. And uh, once it gets to the critical point, uh, it will press the ureter against the pelvic brim and you'll get no urine output. Um, so basically, if you have a suspicion of uh, a secondary compartment syndrome, uh, you can transduce uh, the pressures within the bladder. That, that will give you some indication. Uh, and the second is uh, just uh, perform an escherotomy, and you'll be surprised at how much uh, uh, urine uh, can be produced uh, as a result of uh, pressure. So in C-circulation, we, we worry about hypotension. And, and with burns, the, there is such a struggle with hypotension why is hypotension in the first six hours so significant in burns? Very few patients are burned and have a major uh, source of bleed. So anyone who is hypotensive within the first six to 12 hours of a major burn, you need to look for another source of uh, fluid loss. It, it doesn't always have to be blood loss. It can be fluid loss from other causes. For example, severe diarrhea, you know, so... Uh, just being able to to look for another explanation for for uh, the fluid loss is critical. Yeah, polytrauma isn't it? it, it they're burned. They could also have burned and a pelvic fracture. They could burn. Yeah, yeah. We can be blinkered as responders. Correct. So during C circulation, we would want to calculate the 
TBS say, so what, and there's a lot of contentious with fingers, without fingers. What are the challenges of calculating the total body surface areas? The good news is that you, we tend to over-calculate the area burnt in the pre-hospital environment. Um, in the pre-hospital environment, as immediately after a burn, it is very difficult to work out what is erythema and what is a superficial burn. It's only several hours, uh, days, maybe a day later, that you start seeing the demarcation. So that's the first issue. The second issue is that you you over uh, calculate the TBSA. So, for example, uh, it is not uncommon for us to get a message at the burn center. There's a patient with a 20% burn. A patient's taken to a local district general hospital uh, for airway control, and it's dropped to 10%. By the time it comes to us at the burn center, it's down to 5% because the demarcation is easier. So, bearing that in mind, that we overcalculate the uh, TBSAB, this is why uh, the uh, various fluid formulas uh, t- tend to be uh, uh, rather difficult to use in that situation, which is why I go for the small man, small burn, small bag, uh, rather than relying on fluid resuscitation based on formula when the demarcation between erythema and a superficial burn is not yet uh, being defined. So I guess going back to urine output, if we have one mil per kilo urine output, do we really mind how much of the total body surface area is burned? Yes, because it varies from paper to paper. But once you get to 20% burn, you've got a massive systemic inflammatory response, massive. And that's one of the reasons why um, a burn involves usually the, the, the skin, which is the, one of the major organs in the body. But the ramifications of the uh, inflammatory response, it affects every organ. Uh, and so the, unless you're uh, spending much detail on the specifics of resuscitation, uh, you're likely to d- develop multi-organ dysfunction. And then once you start getting to the realms of multi-organ failures of four to five, uh, the chance of survival becomes very uh, slim. So this is why the size of the burn does dictate the severity of, of the injury. And also the age extremes, they're very young, they're very old, they'll have their uh, own peculiar needs. For example, uh, children, their body surface area is larger when you uh, look at the head and neck. They lose heat very quickly. The old cannot maintain uh, their heat. They have severe comorbidity. Uh, They may be on medications um, that will interfere and have disease states like diabetes and and other uh, chronic diseases that will influence uh, the outcome. So that is why we have to be careful with the age extremes, those who are pregnant and uh, those who have got considerable comorbidity and uh, concomitant medication. Going into more depth with your systemic inflammatory response, as a osteo or a remote medic, what is that going to look like and what can we do? The main thing is uh, to maintain uh, the CABC approach. It is likely that the, uh, the single provider is going to have to do all the duties of uh, a multidisciplinary team uh, in a burn center. So, like I said, have a suspicion. Uh, look at your trends uh, on your charts. 
look at changes in, in vital signs, try and figure out uh, what you think is going on. And the most important things, the common things occur more commonly. So um, just attention to detail and make sure that your, your nursing care, um, uh, and I will allow you to, uh, to uh, explain Ayla's uh, favorite uh, subject of yours, what your mnemonic is. The sheep vomit for nursing care. That's right. Uh, perhaps uh, just for the sake of the audience, explain what sheep vomit uh, entails. Uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll cover that a bit more in our prolonged field care of burns, which is another one. But sheep vomit is something that Jason Jarvis and I came up with. He's a, another 18 Delta that would cover all of the nursing requirements of prolonged field care. And so, so basically keeping the patient uh, warm and dry and keeping them from getting uh, ulcers and, and making sure that they turn and cough and they, they move and keeping them fed uh, nutrition. So we'll cover that more. But uh, sheep vomit is not the most nice uh, way of remembering this, but we haven't found any other way to, to uh, have people keep remembering what sheep vomit means. I think that, that that's a good point. Uh, I think it just depends on your way of remembering it. The other way in which um, uh, the osteo provider can can look into it is just going through the uh, various uh, organs in the body, starting with the airway and chest, and then working down. But don't forget the skin as part of that uh, uh, nursing care. Specifically in burns, you're, you're yeah. right. So moving on to disability, Winston's. Often there's a low level of consciousness or an avpu of, of below alert. What is your concerns with the mental capacity of your burn patient? Well, assuming uh, there is no uh, head injury, because uh, you know uh, you can imagine a level of consciousness will depend on 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 your your brain function. But certainly in burns um, that occur in a confined space, you're more worried about systemic intoxication. And that is because uh, in such burns, carbon monoxide, hydrogen cyanide, ammonia, hydrofluoric acid, and phosphine are all possibilities uh, that will suppress the level of consciousness. And carbon monoxide is particularly bad because it's produced in incomplete combustion of cellulose products like wood, paper, and cotton. It's colorless, it's odorless. It is not picked up by the normal pulse oximeter. You, you need a core oximeter to, to pick up these, these hemoglobins. And the most important thing, if you suspect somebody with carbon monoxide poisoning, is give them 100% oxygen. And that will dissociate much rapidly down to 80 minutes as opposed to 320 minutes if they want room air. And uh, the quicker it's done, the better. In D-disability, we also talk about D-drugs. What are your drugs of choice for this burn casualty? So let's assume that we've got CABC stability. My, my, my first choice would be ketamine because ketamine can be used in uh, different levels to, uh, to get different effects, uh, lower levels analgesia and higher levels anesthesia. But the a drug that has become uh, more popular in, in Europe, uh, certainly in Britain, is methoxyfluorine. There is extensive experience in methoxyfluorine from New Zealand and Australia, where they've been used in burn, burn units and they've been used in the pre-hospital environment. It's a PCA, uh, patient-controlled analgesia. It can last uh, up to 30 minutes on, on uh, the higher concentration. 
where there's no air entrainment or can last up to an hour. So it is possible just on one uh, three mil bottle to get good analgesia whilst you need to do um, painful procedures, whatever that might be. Um, so those would be my two drugs to go to. Of the opioids, my favorite is fentanyl because, again, it's a, qu- a quicker onset, it's cardio-stable, uh, and my drug that I would very reluctantly have to use in an osteo environment is morphine. And we know that morphine in major trauma, morphine in severe burns, is just asking for problems because you tend to get a, uh, a cardiovascular collapse. Speaking of morphine, you've done some research on topical morphine. Can you explain that, please? Yes. Uh, morphine receptors are, are, are widely uh, located uh, within the body. Uh, and we have opioid receptors uh, in the skin. Now, you have opioid receptors within a joint. So in osteoarthritis uh, of a major joint, if you put, uh, wash the joint out and put some uh, morphine in, you get pain relief. And a few years ago, we started putting a morphine topically by uh, taking 10 milligrams of morphine, dissolving it in, in sterile water, not saline because saline stings, and then spraying it on the clean burnt wound and then covering it with uh, cling film. And it is so safe and it's become so popular in our uh, burn center that we now routinely use it in our, uh, following a, a burn clean and uh, before the change of uh, dressings. Is there any contraindications for doing that pre-hospital? I would say the only uh, relative contraindication uh, would be uh, making sure that the responder has got the competencies and the top cover to do so. So it's not something that you would do for the first time in the middle of nowhere. Uh, My suggestion is that you get these clarified before you go out on your mission or be uh, go and spend some time attached to a burn center where this is done. I think when you see it and you see how useful it can be, that would be my only uh, worry. So the first 20 minutes is cooling the burn anyway, so we're not talking about the first um, bit of, of morphine straight away. So uh, for cooling the burn, what what is your number one option for cooling the burn and warming the patient? The important things about... Um, Cooling the burn is to use uh, running water flowing over the burn wound. Um, and it should be, really be uh, at room temperature, anything between 8 to 25 degrees centigrade, uh, for a minimum of 20 minutes. Now, it can either be done by running water flowing over the burn or spraying the area or sponging. Uh, wet towels are not as effective and they really need to be changed uh, frequently for it, for, for, for it to be effective. And the other bit is to remember that cooling a burn can help be helpful for up to three hours from the time of the burn. And definitely do not use ice or cold water uh, because th- that may aggravate the burn because it's a source of uh, another source of uh, uh, burn. And you, you've got to be really careful uh, avoiding hypothermia, especially in children. And the other thing is just uh, common sense, really. If you've got a cooling the burn, it will also provide pain relief. So there are good reasons for that. It does bug me when I keep reading, uh, putting ice on a burn, which just constricts the tissues and traps the heat in. And my eye twitches a bit when I keep hearing that. And yeah, the Australians are still saying putting 
fabric on the burn, which then I'm sure is going to stick to the burn, and then uh, putting water on it. I just can't understand that. Or in the 80s, when I first started, you just put gauze on the wound. Yeah, and, and the problem with all that is that when, when it gets stuck to the to the burn, it's very painful when you're getting it uh, getting it removed. So this is why I'm a big fan of cling film. Uh, cling film, you know, uh, just the ordinary one that's available for wrapping up sandwiches. It doesn't have to be uh, of a medical grade. When loosely applied, um, it also provides analgesia. It keeps the wound moist. It allows inspection to be done. And uh, to me, uh, that is probably uh, the best emergency uh, wound dressing because immediately after a burn, the wound is sterile. So if you can cover it up as quickly as possible, uh, with uh, longitudinal strips, say for for the for the limbs, because you mustn't make it um, circumferential, because that burn wound is going to expand over the next few hours and therefore will constrict. So I'm a big fan of cling film. It is sterile as you pull it off the roll. Correct. And can you explain the, the how cling film will reduce pain? Yeah, uh, I, I remember when we talked about pain, uh, the, the classification of pain is basically nociceptive neuropathic or nociplastic. Nociplastic covers things like IBS, TMJ dysfunction, bladder pain, etc., etc. Nociceptive pain is good pain. Everybody understands nociception. You break a leg, it heals, the pain goes away. Neuropathic is uh, when there is damage to the nervous system, either peripherally or centrally. So in a burn, you've got a peripheral neuropathic problem. Now, one of the features of neuropathic pain is allodynia, and that is where a pleasant stimulus, like stroking the skin, becomes exquisitely painful. Uh, for example, if you've got a major burn that is exposed and you, you open the door to, to, to the room, and if air wafts over the patient, they get extreme increase in pain. By covering the burn with uh, cling film, it acts as a second skin. So the peripheral receptors are not stimulated. Therefore, you get pain relief. And how long should the cling film stay on before you transition into a gauze dressing? D depend. Uh, this is more, more likely to be uh, an issue of, uh, in prolonged field care. I guess if it's uh, several days down the line, um, say two or three days down the line, the wound uh, will change and become complex. And, and I think then another intervention is required um, and that we, 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 we can discuss in detail when we talk about prolonged field care. Fair enough. So moving on to environment. So burns are poikilothermic. Can you tell me what that means? Oh, poikilothermic means fish-like. Uh, there are two areas in medicine where patients become poikilothermic, the premature uh, newborn and the burn patient. And that is why both in neonatal units and in the burn center, the temperature of, of the rooms are kept at a high level because the poikilothermic, i.e. fish-like, you take the temperature of the surrounding and therefore to minimize heat loss, you have to keep the ambient temperature at a higher level. That's really critical. And as you know, hypothermia in burn patients is independently associated with mortality. Therefore, any mitigation is important. So trying to keep the uh, wound covered 
and exposing only the area that's being assessed is important. Temperature measurement is uh, critical. And uh, when we talk about exposing the patient under E, uh, remove all clothing uh, and jewellery. If the uh, clothing is stuck to, uh, to the burn, just cut around it and then cover it up with, uh, with, with clean film or clean sheet. And most important is keeping the patient warm. Uh, it's not simple. It's not um, easy to, a thing to do, but it's something you need to think about how you would manage this in a in a uh, Austrian environment. But uh, as you know, temperature control uh, or hypothermia, sorry, is a uh, part of the triad for tra- trauma death. So it, uh, if you become cold, you don't clot, and if you don't clot, you can bleed out. So it's a vicious circle. And this is the point we made earlier on. A good medic is one who pays a great attention to detail because everything sort of contributes to the final outcome uh, of the patient under your care. Okay, Winston, we've we've talked about the initial assessment and management, the CABCs, and this is when we generally would move into prolonged field care, which will be another podcast episode. The last thing to think about is when to transport, when to refer a burn patient. So if you're in a, an austere environment, what are the indications for the austere medic to know that they need to evac this burn casualty? I think in an austere environment, um, you, you have to know where your next level, higher level of uh, medical resources are going to be. It may not be very obvious. It may not be the closest place. Um, it, it may be uh, something further on, and there may be logistic problems why you can't do so. As a general uh, rule, any burn beyond 10%, any burn involving the head and neck, any inhalational burn, any electrical burn, any burn across a major joint, uh, any uh, burn uh, uh, that involves uh, chemical contamination uh, or or poisoning, any lightning lightning, uh, strikes, these really need uh, to go to the best possible centre. You know, we're lucky in the West that we have a, a graded uh, approach to uh, hospital care. We can go into a local uh, district general hospital, uh, we can go to a teaching hospital, and then we can go into a burn centre. So I can't really give you an answer on that, um, but uh, do not sit on, on these patients because the problems of multi-organ dysfunction, multi-organ failure is going to happen, and the quicker we get uh, them out of there, uh, the better. A valid point. And as a, as a paramedic, I'm always grateful to have telemedicine available for consult on a burn specialist or, or a talk cover doc to help discuss on the uh, medical evacuation discussions. Yeah, I think it's all right. Um, burn injury, just like uh, dermatological illnesses, are best done by telemedicine because you, they can see it. And uh, that's another reason why I like cling film. You don't have to undo it uh, to uh, to uh, show the person on the other uh, on the other side of the video uh, the, the situation. And that's another reason why I like uh, vital signs displayed on a chart because it's easy to just do, to photograph it and or show it on the video for people to see the trend analysis. I, I would say top cover by telemedicine is is really the golden standard. Uh, definitely. And and I, I'm glad that you've mentioned trending throughout the entire discussion. People ask me, what is austere critical care? And, and that's the first thing I mention is you want to be a good medic. You need to trend and, and trend over time. Yeah. 
Do you have any other last thoughts on Burns before we end this this podcast? I think the the, the main thing to is is to remind the, the the paramedic that your involvement with the patient is just the first step in this long journey that they're going to go through, and. I think if you manage these patients well, if they are conscious and you treat them well, explain things to them, uh, explain what you're doing, explain the importance of chest physio or whatever, and provided you you provide a, a good humanitarian approach to these patients, that will shorten the time in hospital, that will shorten the, uh, the incidence of PTSD, and hopefully um, um, help them um, to make that long journey to recovery and return to society. Thank you, Winston. It's always a pleasure to talk to you about these topics that you're so passionate about. And I look forward to hearing the second part of this, which is the prolonged field care of burns. Thank you very much. This has been a presentation from the College of Remote and Offshore Medicine Foundation. If you would like to earn CPD credit for this podcast, you can join the Council of Members. Being a member of the college gives you free CPD credits, free access to the virtual field guide, and discounts on our e-learning courses. You can join the team on the college website, which is quorum, C-O-R-O-M, quorum.org.